Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Progress City Radio Hour. We're here in our town hall yet again, Michael, and we are here for part two of a wonderful sit-down you had with Scott Hennessy. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. Um, getting ready for the holiday season. Looking forward to it. Oh, me too. Me too. We've got a lot to look forward to in our personal and our uh, podcast life. I feel like christmasy this year it's gonna be colder than it was last year last year was it didn't even snow here in north carolina what a rip that is a rip and uh yeah it was even chilly today here in central florida believe it or not which was very exciting well like i said we're here for part two with scott hennessy man i loved listening to that first interview you did with scott it, it, it's such a unique perspective, uh, as I said last time, talking to a writer and a guy who dabbled in some music stuff, some some real hits of the, the era. Uh, but yeah, he has such a great perspective on how the sausage is made and the creative process. Uh, it was really refreshing to listen to and such a great guy. Absolutely. Super nice guy. And uh, it was nice enough to come back for a second a second go around and uh, a lot to talk about he spends a lot of time in tokyo but at, at the start we actually go back a little bit because we were able because we had a sort of a delay between the episodes we're able to run it by the first episode by our patreon uh, backers and they submitted some questions based on things he had said in the first episode. So we were able to go back a little and flesh out a little more. So that was fun to do. Yeah, I love this. It makes me think we should space out these interviews more. It was not by choice, but uh, ended up being a really cool little Q&A. And thanks to our Patreon members for submitting those questions. And if you want to know how to become a question submitter, stay tuned to the end of the episode. Absolutely. And you know, one thing I wanted to say is this: this is our first new episode since retro magic yes which took place about a month ago and i just wanted to say what a fun time that was and thank them they gave us a nice little shout out in the program there uh, you contributed some music and i um co-hosted a panel about spaceship earth got to meet our friend peggy ferris in person that was exciting very cool uh several of our uh Several of our past guests were there. That was very fun to meet. Uh, Bob Holland was mm-hmm. great. Mm-hmm. Uh, Davey Fighton, who we talked to recently, was there. So it was it was a great event, really well done. And I, you know, I was I'm grateful to them for asking me to participate and for the nice shout out they gave us. Yeah, that was very kind. Those guys are real peaches. Those retro magic retro WDW guys. Um, we really appreciate them, including us. I only wish I could have been there in person, but I'm glad that Bob kind of went, I don't know, I don't want to say went viral, but uh, took off, uh, Muckwave really seemed to take off at the event. So that Yeah, it did. Really it was fun watching more <laughs> more people get exposed to the lore of Muckwave. So that was fun, yes, and seeing it, seeing it take off a little bit. That was good. Yeah, we're very glad that this is going to continue on. We look forward to being involved in 2025. Uh, those guys, like I said, great guys. And, uh, you know, we all uh, 
all of us are really in a rush to get all these stories out. And Scott is a, it's a big part of this as well to get, get as many of these stories collected as we can. Absolutely. So thanks to them. If, if anybody, you know, found the podcast through the event, I'd, we'd love to hear from you at podcast at progresscityusa.com. Drop us a note. And, uh, yeah, it, thanks to everybody. With that, let's jump into your interview with Scott. We've already aired the first part of your interview and had a lot of really good response to that. But one thing we got was when people found out that we were going to have you back, a lot of questions of people who had sort of follow-up questions about things we talked about in your first episode. So first, I th- before we go forward, I thought we'd go backward a little bit. And uh, I took notes based on some questions that people had. And uh, if we'll go, go back and talk about that, if that's okay. Sure. Hope I can remember. <laughs> yeah, well, I, <laughs> I understand. This is... Uh, I, I can't remember what I had for lunch yesterday, much less what was going on 40 yep. years ago. So <laughs> one question I had, you know, you mentioned working on the Invention and Enterprise Pavilion early on with Rolly's team. Did you ever work with Stan Freeberg on that? Yes. Yes, we did. But I'd forgotten all about that. Yeah, they brought in Stan Freeberg. <laughs> He's a character, was a character. He took Steve Kirk and I out to lunch and we got in his car and there were like half eaten hamburgers in the back seat. And <laughs> he, he was talking about how he was having issues with the school principal and his children. And uh, I thought, well, they're not the tidiest children in the world. <laughs> <laughs> he, he talked a lot about, he used to do commercials and he talked a lot about those commercials and the trouble he would get into <laughs> because of those commercials. And he came up with this idea for the Invention and Enterprise Pavilion was basically you got on like a Wedway type of vehicle and you rode into a big light bulb. That was his idea. The whole thing was going to take like this idea light bulb. He was thanked for his participation and we never saw him again. (laughs) Oh, no. It feels like they were bringing in a lot of outside people on Epcot, a lot of uh, people that I've been surprised by to find out that they were involved. And he was definitely one of them. But I, I would imagine it must have been pretty fun to have him around even just for that short of time. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he did presentations for us that were hilarious. He would show us all the commercials he made and he'd tell us the stories behind each one. It was It was very entertaining. Yeah. Uh, Yes, that was when I found out that he had been involved with with Epcot. That was definitely a surprise. Well, another thing people were interested in, you mentioned working with Rolly on Eptot, which was this uh, children's area. What what can you tell me about that project? Well, we we were just sitting around one day thinking, you know, there should be something for children. So we we started designing this little play area that had all these unique and futuristic kind of you know, activities. Uh, Steve Kirk did some really great sketches and stuff. And, and Steve's the one that came up with the, time, the title Eptop. Oh, okay. Uh, and I don't know. It just, it, 
one of those projects, like so many things we worked on, I probably have done more things that weren't built than that were built, but that was one of them. But right. one of the fun things about that title is after Epcot opened, we had a company publication called The Wed Way. Mm-hmm. And in The Wed Way, they published pictures of all the, the, the children of employees that were born around the time Epcot opened. And they were okay. called Eptots. <laughs> and my oldest son, Sean, is one of the Eptots. Oh, wow. Okay. To this day, we, we give him a, we tease him about being an Eptot. <laughs> Came along at just the right time to be an Eptot. <laughs> well, there was also a lot of interest about your work on life and health, what became Wonders of Life, and the head trip. There are a number of very... Uh, let's say dedicated people who are into the history of this attraction. Uh, and I know there were different versions of this show during development, different numbers of host characters. Some I, I've seen pictures and models and concept art with some with three characters, some with one characters, they had different names, things like that. What was the show like when you were working on it on the head trip? Well, we were trying to d- develop characters that were asexual you know, mm. either female mm-hmm. or male, uh, so that, that the show could apply to anybody. The first script I wrote with those characters was about, you know, you confront a situation, you can either react with emotion or you can react with reason. Right. You, you re- react with emotion, you know, you're going to cause, you're going to trigger the fight or flight response which causes your stomach to shut down, your lungs to breathe harder, your heart to pump faster, your adrenal glands to go crazy. You know, when you do that too much throughout your life, you know, you literally make yourself sick. Right. And then I was told, well, I don't know if this show will last. We we should probably have two other versions of this show, you know, to see if it'll really fly. So I wrote a script about, about, what it's like to have a hangover. <laughs> and then I wrote one about what it's like to be fighting a cold. And I basically, Interesting. I, I, those shows never went anywhere, but it proved to management that the show was versatile enough that it could handle more than one scenario if necessary. Interesting. So were they thinking about swap having different shows play in that theater or just looking at different kinds of shows that could go in there, I guess. At the time they were just in, more interested in saying if other kinds of shows could go in there, if need be. Oh, okay. Okay. Were you pitching around the, I, cause I know they were looking for a sponsor. Were you around, involved in sort of pitching these to different companies? Yeah. Uh, who was it? Uh, I think it was Humana. We it was Humana. We pitched a bunch of stuff to Humana uh, at at the beginning, and I don't know what happened. Why they backed out? It just you know. And then then we put the 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 um, health pavilion on a shelf for a few years, mm-hmm. or it was pulled off and redone under the the leadership of Barry Braverman, and it became what it became. Right. Yeah, it's an interesting, interesting process there. Well, another thing I've seen artwork for, for Life and Health, I think maybe artwork by Steve Kirk, perhaps. Uh, a show with Ludwig von Drake and Donald Duck. Did you work on that? Oh, boy. 
Now there's there's a buried <laughs> a buried memory. <laughs> I this is like to, this is your life, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I seem to remember artwork for Ludwig, but I don't know what we were using him for. It almost looked like a sort of medicine show kind of you know, an, an, an old old fashioned talking off a wagon kind of medicine show, but I, you know, I've I've just seen the art. I don't know anything about it really. So, you know, just I another... used to, I used to write puns and stuff. Yeah, and I do remember watching Ludwig von Drake cartoons, and Exitensio had worked on those cartoons. Oh, okay. And after after watching them, he he looked at me and he said, "See, you're not the only one who did puns on our day." Because, yeah, there we we were watching the Ludwig cartoons for research, but I'm I just don't quite remember what the final show was supposed to be. Sure, sure. Well, and as always, you know, there are ideas, so many ideas floating around. Some don't go anywhere. Some some are in and in and out in a day, and some stick around. So I'm sure there was a lot going on. Oh, quite a bit. We had we had a, a whole presentation area. We had models of all the pavilions set up, and I was in there once. I don't remember what I was doing, but this tour came in, and before they got there, I thought, well, I better get out of here, but I didn't have time, so I crawled underneath the model and I curled up there until the tour was over. <laughs> and and the guy giving the tour, I don't know where he was getting his information, but he was making stuff up left and right about the pavilion. I wanted to say something, but I thought, nah, I'll just stay down here and stifle the laughter. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a heck of a reveal to like in the middle of the presentation come yeah. out from under the table. Well, actually, yeah. uh, I, I have something to add about that. That's pretty funny. Uh, of course, we also had lots of questions about Kitchen Cabaret. People love Kitchen Cabaret. And one question was, if there was anything you considered for that show that didn't make the final cut, any characters or any songs, anything that just didn't make it into the final show? Yes, yes. The uh, Originally, the Breads and the Serial Group were going to be sung by some buns and rolls as <laughs> if they were barbershop quartet. Okay. Now, we went out, Steve Kirk, Jeff Burke and I, we went out to lunch one day and we got a little lubricated with beer. We got to talking. Uh, this is a cabaret, you know. It, does does a barbershop quartet style act really fit in the cabaret? We thought, no, nah, it really doesn't. Well, as we as we were talking, uh, Bette Midler's "Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy" of Company B was playing in the background. We thought, yeah, let's do that. Let's do something like that. So I went back to work after lunch. Uh, and uh, I started writing lyrics for the Boogie Woogie Bakery Boy. Mm -hmm. And I got so turned on by the idea. And I wrote and wrote and wrote. I came in the next morning and realized that the lyrics I had written were as long as the entire show. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I spent most of the morning cutting that thing way, way down. But I'm glad I, I just, the barbershop quartet just wouldn't have been the same. Yeah, it doesn't, as you say, in a cabaret type show, the, the other, the other act, the uh, the serial sisters, uh, that fits so much better. Well, now you mentioned, you know, they were obviously reminiscent of the Andrew sisters. Uh, yeah. But what about the other acts? Where, you know, where did you guys get your inspiration for the for the various acts? Uh, was there any sort of thing in specific you were basing them off of? 
Yeah, the Gary Goods and the Stars of the Milky Way were based off uh, the Sigfield Follies. We watched That's movies, right. the Sigfield Follies. Ham and Eggs was a vaudeville act. We were told to watch this one particular group, vaudeville act. We were told they were hilarious. I'm sorry, humor changes. <laughs> it was not funny at all. <laughs> right. I'm sure there are people today who would hear ham and eggs and go, this isn't funny at all. So, you know, things just change. Things evolve. Sure. Veggie, veggie, fruit, fruit. We talked about having another female AA figure come down. It's like a Carmen Miranda type. Budget-wise, it turned out we had to use Bonnie in that respect. But uh, Glenn Barker, rest his soul, he, he recently passed away. Great guy. He's one of our premier sound designers. He said, you ought to watch this one Carmen Miranda movie. He said, there's a number in there that might give you some inspiration. I don't remember the name of the movie, and I'm not sure what exactly the song was. But, you know, the dancers were all going around. You know, the guys with the, the terrace sleeves or all these colors and and they were singing right. something like boom, chicka, chicka, boom, 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 chicka, chicka, boom, boom. And then, of course, Carmen Miranda comes out with a bowl of fruit on her head. I thought, boom, chicka, chicka, boom, boom. I, and it just came to me. Well, let's, I'll, I'll try veggie, veggie, fruit, fruit and see what happens. You know, veggie, fruit, fruit. Buddy Baker's the one that put the melody to that. Um, and it turned, I, I, to this day, I am dumbfounded. I'll see people I haven't seen in 20 years, and they won't say, hey, Scott, how you doing? They come up to me, they go, veggie, fruit, fruit, veggie, veggie, <laughs> fruit, fruit. In fact, I was just at Epcot watching the new fireworks show, and they're, they're playing it, veggie, fruit, fruit, in the fireworks show. My wife yes, goes, they are. Whoa. It's like, it's, it's like the, the earworm that will never die. <laughs> Exactly. You see it on merchandise. You see it. I, that's funny. I didn't think about it being in the fireworks show, but that's that's something fun to brag to the family about when you're watching the fireworks and your song comes on. I was I was I was quite surprised and yeah. pleased. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you mentioned this other character. I had seen at some point. I saw a, a lot of artwork for this show. Maybe at some past Disney event. And there was some uh, Bonnie Appetit looking person, uh, maybe call it a thing called the art. It said Juicy Lucy. Oh, <laughs> so, oh yeah. So, uh, okay. That was, that was a bunch of immature kids. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the second figure, the female figure that was going to come down on the moon mm -hmm. before Bonnie, uh, we, we're just goofing around, so let's call her Juicy Lucy as a working title. <laughs> and it, unfortunately, unfortunately uh, it's kind of stuck for a little. It stuck around too long, actually. But, you know, <laughs> Rolly would give presentations, and others would give presentations, and they'd use that name. And I could, I, I could see the tension in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> so, needless to say, we we lost Juicy when <laughs> lost Juicy. I, I love really just going with it, just going going right ahead with it. Uh, that's that's too funny. Well, Bonnie, did you base Bonnie on anyone in particular, or was that just was she just sort of a stock cabaret character? Pretty much a stock cabaret character. Yeah. You know, we, like we I think last time we talked about the fact that that Leah Sklar and her group didn't like 
by right. we would have changed it to a guy and we thought about calling him Ben Appetit, but we mm. were too far along in production we to, to to pull the rug out from under the show, so we had to stick with Bonnie. Right. Well, as a writer, how closely did you work with the design team on projects like this? I I mean, how big was the team? Did you did you just hand off a script, which I don't think is the case, and let them do their thing? Or were you involved in the design and things like that? I, I sat in the, all the meetings. We, we decided, well, what if we do this with this character and this and this character? And then I would go and write based on what I thought we just talked about. And and then we'd come back and talk, and occasionally we'd, I'd make changes. And interesting enough, I finished the script, and uh, I went to Marty Sklar. Marty called me into his office, and he goes, this is too tight. I don't know what th- – you. this is too tight. I'm going to ha- have to get you help. And, you know, I'm young. I'm thinking, okay, fine, good. Let's let's see who can – they bring in Albertino. And mm. I'm big Al. And mm-hmm. he read the script. He goes – What's wrong with this script? There's nothing wrong with this script, which made my <laughs> ego swell. Right. And, and John Hinch apparently didn't like some of the character designs. He didn't think they were Disney enough. And <laughs> I was going, if we put it out there, it will become Disney. You know? So we, we literally got away with murder <laughs> in the early days. <laughs> well, that's right. Disney's whatever uh, whatever you say it is at that point. Well, that is a good point because I was – People were having, uh, actually on, on Twitter the other day, having a discussion about Bonnie because uh, a friend of ours is dressing up like Bonnie for one of these marathons. You know, people dress up for the marathons down here. Somebody is dressing up as Bonnie for the marathon. I was talking about her, talking about her costume, and I was looking at pictures of Bonnie and thinking that that show had a very distinctive art style, uh, especially for her, that you don't really see anywhere else and i i just thought that was really interesting well if i remember correctly that's steve kirk steve yeah did all the design character design well he, he had some help with a, a lady named rennie rao who's now rennie marquez mm-hmm. she did she did some of the character sketches as well the uh the um ham and eggs projection that went on behind that was done by tim kirk steve's brother Oh, okay. Those were fun. Those were really charming. I, yeah. I, I love that that conceit, that gag. It's a lot of fun. Did you take any part in the in like the voice casting and recording? Yes. Yes. Uh found out that our ideas of what a character should sound like was vastly different than what management thought they should sound like. <laughs> oh really? Uh we went around and around a few times, but we finally got voices that everyone seemed to be happy with. What, what was your viewpoint of, of how they should sound? What, what were you after? Well, I'm trying to remember eggs, Mr. Eggs. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't like him. So we, we had to change his voice a little bit. And it turns out the guy that did eggs was also the crooning voice of Mr. Dairy Goods. Oh, okay. They they could not management could not believe that it was the same person. <laughs> That's what voice actors do. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I'm trying. I'm trying to remember. There, we had no objection with Bonnie Appetit. That was a lady named Janine Brown. Serial sisters were just 
some studio musicians, I believe. They're nobody that we would all know. Right. Ham and I don't remember Mr. Ham, but there's just another voice actor. They seem to mm-hmm. be okay with him. It was just so perfect. I know, didn't Betty Taylor record a demo yes. as Bonnie for this? Yeah. Betty Taylor. Uh, and I forget the gentleman's name came in, played piano for that scratch track. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, well, very, yeah. It's, you know, always interesting to think about, think about the process, every, all the decisions that go into this and, as you say, you guys had your perspective, and then management had their perspective. And, and sure, there were times it was like we we didn't agree with management, but but it's nice to have other opinions to bounce off of because I, I think things evolve and get better. You yes. know, and and I think that that was the case in the Kitchen Cabaret. Yeah. One voice I never liked, I never liked, was Figments. Really. You know, he was supposed to be the, the fun, childlike side of imagination. And to me, he sounded like a little child molester. <laughs> that gravelly little voice. And it just, it just never rang true with me. But he yeah. was very popular, very successful. So, Well, I know that was a hard one to cast because I've, I've seen the ad in the uh, like in the Imagineering newsletter where they even had like open casting call for people to come in and try and voice Figment or anybody you know who might be able to come and voice Figment or something like that, you know? Yeah. So I would imagine that was a difficult one to cast. Yeah, it was. It was because there again, you put five people in the room, you're going to get five different opinions on what the voice should sound like. Yes, right, right. Well, you know, you kind of hinted at this, uh, thinking going forward. Uh, you, you hinted at this when we talked about the changes last time that happened on the Wonders of Life shows that you worked on. But I wanted to get your perspective on how things changed at Imagineering when uh, Michael Eisner and Frank Wells came into the company. Well, i got to pick and choose my words carefully here. Uh, you're among friends. Well, Michael was very hands-on. He He pretty much contributed to everything we worked on and you know it's a new generation his his opinions i didn't always agree with them but we we went with him he had jeffrey katzenberg heading up all the film product and they come from a film world you know there were times when i thought you know guys this is we are a 3d world we make attractions for people right through we're not sitting there watching a film right but they and everything they seemed, at least to me, seemed they were coming from a two-dimensional perspective. Not to say nothing worked out. I mean, everything seemed to work out very well. But uh, it was just it was an adjustment, particularly for me, especially when <laughs> they kicked me off the show. I was so in love with. <laughs> yeah, well, it was obviously a very sort of coming from a film and TV background, a very Hollywood mindset along with, and you could see with, you know, bringing name actors into projects like they did into all sorts of projects and things like that. Uh, Well, that, that was another thing that was very disappointing to me is that we used to, the people at WED and WDI, we used to do the, the the ancillary voices you hear around the park. You know, mm -hmm. there's a recording of, 
miners playing cards in Big Thunder at Disneyland. Well, I'm one of those miners. Oh, wow. But after Michael came in, suddenly it's like, oh, no, we've got to use voice talent. We've got to use, honest to God, voice talent. So you'll never hear me or anyone else now, I guess, apparently, because they're so obsessed with celebrity. Right. Another thing is, is uh, I was... After Kitchen Cabaret, it was my dream to write more lyrics. But no, 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 no. we got to bring in top-notch lyricists and writers for that. So that I never did that again. I did a little, one little ditty for the Seas Pavilion. It was not at the scale of what I really hoped to do. Right. And you would think that after Kitchen Cabaret, you would be given the green light to, to do more, but I, I can see how like frustrating that would be to have people saying, well, let's bring in the experts. Well, you guys were the experts. You knew, you knew what you were doing. You were experts of theme park, three dimensional design, as you said. And just because someone's popular in another medium doesn't mean they're, I don't know, have something better to contribute than, than you guys do. I would imagine that would be irritating. It, it was, it was, I think the most insulting thing that was said is this high, real high up studio executive said, well, we should get real writers for these projects. Oy. And it's like, come on, man. So because, anyway. Yeah. Writing a TV show is completely different from writing a, a theme park show or a, an attraction or it's, it's just a totally different method really. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, one thing though that I think did help a little is we started bringing in what they call punch up writers mm -hmm. where I wrote a bunch of scripts for Epcot later on. And, and uh, they would bring in these TV writers to add their own humor to it and, you know, it basically punched up the script, made it funnier, made, tightened things up. You know, in that respect, it was good. Mm -hmm. But uh, I don't think I was unqualified. <laughs> right. I you were a real writer. I <laughs> you, thought so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's jump ahead uh, to your work in Tokyo. When last we spoke, we talked about the Saucer Safari, which sounded really interesting, and your work on the Country Bears. So uh, what happened after that? Okay. Uh, a couple things happened in Jingle Bell Jamboree. I, I want to reiterate. Um, sure. I, I think I talked about the confrontation I had with the one gentleman from OLC who was upset because he'd been sleeping in his car, working all hours. <laughs> we had a, another issue when during the recording of the show where one of our WDI senior guys was there. There was some discussion over a, a lyric change or whatever, and it got a little testy. Mm -hmm. And this guy took me aside, and he says, I want you to understand something. He said, the Japanese are stupid. You have to tell them how to do their job. I was dumbfounded. I was completely dumbfounded. It's like, okay, if they're so stupid, how is it they had the second strongest economy in the world right now? Right. But this guy, for some reason, had a big chip on his shoulder for the Japanese. Yikes. 
And then another top executive on the Tokyo portfolio, I went, there was a situation that had come up and I said, I said, what, what, what do you suggest I do in this situation? And his, his response was, and I'm softening the language. He said, screw them. Just tell them to go screw themselves. Again, I was dumbfounded. Wow. Yeah. So, Plus, uh, you know, the Japanese see the world differently. They, they, they approach problems from a different perspective, and that was a little confusing for me. So after Jingle Bell Jamboree, I thought, do I really want to continue working in an environment where, first of all, I don't understand the culture that well, and I've got this bigotry and, and cultural arrogance all around me? I said, I don't, I don't think I want to continue on the Japanese portfolio. But... They offered me the Visionarium in Tokyo. Uh, All yes. wanted to adapt the, the, the French the French version to Japan, which we all kind of questioned. But I got a trip to France out of it. <laughs> <laughs> it Good. It, I went over there with a group from WDI and OLC, and we saw the show in French, and then that night we all cruised the River Seine on a dinner cruise, and here here I am in France. We've been drinking a lot of wine when we're passing mm -hmm. the Eiffel Tower, and I'm sitting there going, practicing my my poor Japanese, you know, Kono funi wa tanoshi desu Now this boat is fun, isn't it? <laughs> right. And I just thought, man, man, I'm in France speaking Japanese. This is this is another one of those weird cultural. You know, things. Right. Uh, anyway, we uh, I went over there for the recording of the show. Uh, they, they they used a, a very popular uh, voice actor and TV personality named George Takoro as timekeeper, and a young and beautiful young lady named Yuki Saito as Nine Eye. Okay. And the recordings all went well. George Takoro made a lot of fun of me for some reason, but I went along with it. But my favorite story there is that Fujifilm was the sponsor. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the show, on all the screens, the Fujifilm logo had to appear. Okay. And they hired they hired a company to to make sure the, the film product was right. But for some reason, the, the Fuji executives never liked the color green. So this poor guy had to go back and redo the film. I don't know how many times until he finally, I don't know, five, six, seven times before he finally got the, the green on the screen to where the, the Fuji executives bought into it. Wow. And after it was all said and done, he came to me. He says, well, he says, we did it finally. He says, can you keep a secret? And I said, yeah. He said, we did it on Kodak film. <laughs> Uh, whatever works. Yep, yep. Uh, I'm sure the Kodak people at Epcot would have been pleased to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> it's so funny to think of all the um, all the stuff they had to go through on imagination with, well, even changing Figment's color from green to purple because of Fujifilm. And then on the other side of the Pacific, you've got trying to, trying to make Fuji happy. Oh, okay. It's always something. Always something yeah. sponsors.
Absolutely. Well, how did you go about adapting that show? How much did it change? Because obviously I only know the American version that we had down here in Florida, which was obviously a very different creature from the French version. So how did it change for Tokyo? Well, what happened was I was given the English translation of the French script. Mm -hmm. And I went to Japan and sat with the Japanese writers and I explained to them what every sentence meant in English, which is what I ended up doing from then on out. I spent a lot of time with this team of writers I would explain why a joke in, in, in English was funny to us, and they would have to find a joke, some kind of an equivalent in their language that was funny to them. I mm-hmm. would explain, you know, colloquialisms. I hope that came out right. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, puns, things like that. And and, and uh, I, the team I worked with were great. They, they, they were very dedicated and worked very hard to... to make sure that it was a script that the Japanese audience would appreciate. Um, one thing we had to do for the Visionarium is the Japanese, they may be familiar with the names Jules Verne and H.G. Wells, but they don't really know anything about them. You know, They don't know about the father of science fiction and all that. So we had to create a pre-show where Timekeeper basically discusses you know, who, who the heck... H.G. Wells and Jules Verne were, why, how they tied into the story that we were telling inside. It, it, went, it turned out pretty good, I thought. That's great. Yeah, it's, it's funny the cultural considerations you never even think about, but you really have to look at that. Were the writers you were working with, were they uh, WDI writers just in Japan, or were they OLC, or OLC. what? They are all OLC. Mm. Yeah, I ended up being good friends with some of them because, you know, writers are weird. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) you included. So true. (laughs) It's so true. Uh, Well, you know, I'm shocked to hear. I was surprised by this period. You know, you talk about this sort of, sort of bigotry in the upper ranks. And that's so surprising to hear at this point. But, uh, you know, one thing I'd always wondered about the early, earliest years of Tokyo, but before you got there was about, you know, this generation of the sort of card Walker generation of people who had been heavily involved in world war two and things like that. And uh, the, the fact that they wound up working in Japan and how that came about. Cause I, I even know there was some introspection about whether they would uh, even on Epcot allow like Mitsubishi to sponsor the living seas when they were in talks about that, you know, um, just because of this sort of generational bias that they had. So w- was this just that continuing you know, I I can't say with any definitive. I can't say if that is exactly the answer or not. But I I, I tend to think so. Yeah. I tend to think there was a, you know, first of all, we're Disney. You know, right. we're the greatest in the world, and that right. makes people at a subliminal level makes you think you're better than everyone else. Plus, we won the war. You know, right. and I I think that was an underlying factor in, in a lot of decisions that were made 
by that generation. You know, I mean, I had family members that were in the war, and before they passed away, they couldn't forgive the Japanese at all. They thought I was an idiot for going over there. And, and right, yeah. I Yeah, I think of the, the way my grandfather, for example, would talk about it was uh, the same way, a sort of never... Never, never forget, never really forgive kind of yeah. viewpoint. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's, well, you know, something you, you talk about the sort of weird Disney, that's something they've had to learn over and over again. They had to learn that again in France as well of, you know, you have to listen to your partners overseas because different cultures want different things and <laughs> different cultures work in different ways. So you, yeah. you have to pay attention to these things. Well, by the time I left, I think the company had learned that very, very well because they, they worked very hard at incorporating the ideas from OLC or, or from Shanghai or from Hong Kong to, to make the, the, the product more, you know, com compatible to the audience over there, you know, it, right. Yet keeping still keeping the, the the American Disney philosophy, but yet making it work better for each particular culture. So, I think absolutely. Yes. I think people are growing up. I'm sure it's even better today. I hope. Yeah. Well, I think when you look at something like how they treated the, the Shanghai project, that it's it's a whole different world from, yeah. of course, than it would was. 30, 40 years ago. So as you would expect it to be, but uh, it's still very interesting, very interesting change to come about. Well, so, so you get, get Visionarium done. So what comes next for you after that? Well, I'm going home I'm after Visionarium thinking, well, I'm glad that's over. I'm done with Japan. No, I don't want to have to put up with the cultural nonsense anymore. And it just so happens I get home and my manager called me and said, uh, we have a project at Epcot we need you to work on. And it's kind of, okay, all right. So we want you to work with Roly Crump. And I went, okay, ah. all right. So I uh, went down there to work on a thing called Innoventions. Sure, yeah. Roly and I worked on a show called The Magic House. Okay. Uh, which um, Roly brought in uh, a gentleman who known for creating magical illusions by the name of Jim Steinmeier. We had this show that show started in a theater where you're standing here looking at an architect who was talking about building a house. And then suddenly this rabbit magically appears named the great Caratini. <laughs> it sounds funny, but it wasn't. Uh, oh no. Anyway, the great Caratini and they had some banter going back and forth and, and, Suddenly the, the host or hostess flew up in the air and disappeared or whatever. I don't kind of remember because it, it was actually was not a, a very well sh good show. I was very disappointed in this show because after there you went into the next section, which was uh, it was rooms from from the house of what you could do in the house of today, and Caratini would appear in each of the rooms and show you what what's the latest oven technology. Or, mm -hmm. or you know, we've got windows that can go from from clear to opaque, or we've got these marvelous toilets that make noises to cover up your noises and <laughs> things like that. <laughs> right. But it, it it was I don't know the show it just didn't work. The gentleman uh, 
who played Caratini was Matt Fewer, he, who was Max Headroom. Sure, yeah. Yeah. yeah he did a good job, but, but uh, it just it was one of those shows where all the parts just didn't quite fit. Interesting. In fact, there were, if I remember, the show, the, the Magic House show only lasted six months of that, um, from what I remember. Wow. But I remember there were there were uh, comments made saying, "Well, it's glitzy, but it's, it lacks substance." You know, hmm. they thought they thought it might have been focused on guests with short attention spans. You know, it just it just didn't resonate with the audience. So anyway, Rolly and I used to commiserate not only about stuff like that, but we used to walk around the lagoon in the morning um, just to get our exercise in. <laughs> One morning we walked around. We got done. We were soaking wet because of the humidity. Yes. And uh, this young lady was setting up the merchandise cart for the day, and she had T-shirts. <laughs> and Rolly Sweet talked to her, and they're selling us two T-shirts before opening. <laughs> so we went into work that day with our Epcot souvenir T-shirts on, but we were drunk. <laughs> I, I bet if anybody could sweet talk someone and sell some T-shirts, Rolly could do it. Oh, well, he was a master. Yeah. Well, why do you think that show didn't come together? Because, I mean, it, sound, it sounds like a fun premise. So is it just that sometimes things just don't work out? Sometimes things just don't work out. You know, you, you, you try a new recipe and the ingredients just don't mesh. You know, it was just one of those things. Uh, you know, Matt Fuhrer's performance was a little sarcastic. I think that might have turned people off. Mm, yeah. Um, the, the puppet... I don't know. I don't think the puppet was very endearing. You know, he was just wasn't wasn't a Disney esque puppet, apparently. Oh yeah. You know. And like I guess the audience just felt it was dumbed down too much. But oh, you're at a trade show. What do you expect? Yeah, exactly. Well, it was in it's interesting that, that you were doing this show custom because I think a lot of those other exhibits weren't a, a lot of the other exhibits sort of repurposed trade show exhibits in that in that earlier version in that very first version. You know, to be honest with you, I couldn't answer that because I, I only concentrated on the two things that I did. Um, oh, okay. And to be honest with you, I walked around interventions when it was done, and I the place just didn't resonate with me. It's I'm just that's not my kind of thing i don't find that entertaining or interesting you know that's just me i did work on another show starring bill nye the science guy okay i remember that one uh yeah i remember that show yeah i had fun on that one because bill was a pretty nice nice guy and uh, he was very easy to work with um we did a show where he, he was explaining that every invention or creation starts with an idea what happens to, to most inventors and creators is that you're going to get confronted by clouds of doubt. Mm -hmm. So we had um, comedians, David Stein, well, uh, David Steinberg directed the show. David came to rose to fame during the Smothers Brothers comedy hour back when they were causing, you know, scandals on CBS. <laughs> on CBS, making CBS nervous. Right. Uh, but we, had comedians uh, Kevin Meany, Paul Rodriguez, and Margaret Cho. They wore these cloud costumes, and, and they were tormenting Bill as he was trying to show how do you 
how you get an idea into fruition. And eventually, Perseverance was a Sun character. And I forget the actress's name that played the Perseverance, but she shines through at the end. And, <laughs> and we save the day. Ta-da. And it was, it was a fun show. I, I like that show a lot. Um, That's some, uh, like, name talent, too. That, yeah. that was not a, not a throwaway casting that is some very famous people well that's that was uh that was the uh eisner effect you know right true you know and, and nothing it's david steinberg i mean a lot of, we we laughed a lot we had a good time together but i felt i could have done exactly what he did but he had the name so they brought him in to, to mm, yeah and i just went along for the ride you know got got uh, Bill and I had to sign a couple of books for my boys who were young at that time, watched his show. In fact, his show, we, we wanted to stay in the spirit of Bill and I, so we we actually went to Seattle where his TV show was shot, and we used his editing studio, so we had the right effects and the right sound effects and visual effects put on. So it was it was the Bill and I experience. Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense because it was a very distinctive style. So, yeah. yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, anyway. the interventions thing is is interesting. We were I was in a discussion about this not too long ago about how interventions differed from Communicore. Uh, Communicore much more of a sort of wide open space with those open windows. Interventions a little more closed in. So it was definitely a more I, I don't, it was a different environment, I guess you would say. More of a captive audience. Yes, true, true, true. Well, anyway, interventions, we get it ready, it's about to open. The company has a big wrap party for everyone that worked on interventions, and we're all having a good time. And, you know, this is the Disney decade. You know, we thought things are supposed to go gangbusters from here on out. Mm-hmm. Well, at this party, the project manager of the whole thing kind of said, well, you know, the Disney decade isn't coming together like the company thought it would. Says, the truth of the matter is, folks, he says, if you don't have a project when you get home, you're probably going to get laid off. Oh, good grief. So you, you, you could hear, the, you could see, feel the energy in the room. Just go, <laughs> we were all looking at each other like, what the heck? Although I didn't use heck. Um, yeah, I bet. That's, that's so, not very good party etiquette, for sure, to uh, to drop something like that in the middle of a party. Well, anyway, I, I'm I'm on the flight home thinking, well, I guess I'm cooked. I mean, my Disney career is maybe finally over. And I get off the plane and get back to work. And they said, Scott, we're going to be putting Toontown in Tokyo. How would you like to work on Toontown? Uh. And there again, I was still smarting from the experiences I had before with the cultural arrogance and the bigotry and not understanding the Japanese that well. And I literally thought about it. I thought, well, maybe I should go try something new here. But I'm driving to work one day, and I had a very long commute at that time. I had a 65-mile one-way commute. Oh, boy. And I'm driving along, and it's like that little angel on my shoulder suddenly appeared and said, you know, maybe if you took the time to learn about the Japanese 
you might do bit, it might do you well. And it was that was like a, probably the greatest moment of my career because I thought, dang, I'm going to do that because I had a, a cassette player and a CD player in my car. So I started ordering cassettes and CDs on Japanese culture and how to understand them and how to work with them. So my car literally became a, a classroom mm. for, for years after that. I, I was always trying to learn something new. And, man, it's the best thing I ever did because when I started working on Toontown, I didn't, I didn't totally understand right away. I mean, there was uh, – it evolved over time, but, but when they would come – back with some weird ideas i i knew how to, i knew where they were coming from why they were coming from that perspective and i i knew how i could circumvent and and work with them to create an idea that was still disney but worked for them and right sure toontown was really challenging because first of all it's all about american cartoon humor and none of that, none of that translates to Japanese. So I had to sit down and explain what every joke in that area meant. Oh, wow. And, and there are a lot of jokes. That's, that's a very dense thing to have to explain. Well, here's another thing. Uh, they wanted to know stories behind everything in Toontown. So I ended up writing a thing called the Toontown Chronicles. It was literally a story for every attraction, every shop, every every restaurant, every food cart, every popcorn cart, every window graphic, every sign hung in the place. It was like 80 pages long. And I had help at the, I had help at the end because I was going crazy. But it was all written from a 30s or 40s cartoon perspective. And I gave it to the Japanese, and they were very grateful, and they said they were going to work on getting it translated. A couple years later, I said, hey, how did the translation go on that? And they go, well, it didn't. I said, what do you mean? He said, somebody stole it. Oh, no. Somebody stole the Toontown Chronicles, and it never got translated. So you know, that was very disappointing because I put a lot of work into that thing. You know? I was kind of proud of the silliness that, that I created. <laughs> but Oh, that's horrible. Yeah. And, that, and I was surprised at that time, too, because the Japanese, it's a culture, they're, they're pretty – they have a thing called you don't disturb the wah, which which is the harmony. You don't disturb the harmony of our society. You know, you everybody has does what they do the way they do it, and they don't get in the way of anyone else. And uh, some bozo comes along and steals the Toontown Chronicles. So I thought, well, there's a, a wah breaker right there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Indeed. But anyway, anyway, uh, oh, my favorite story. One of the one of the window graphics in, in California is Three Little Pigs Construction Company. Mm -hmm. No, I'm sorry, it's the Chinny Chin Chin Construction Company. <laughs> and they asked me, Scott, son, what does Chin Chin mean? And I was saying, well, it doesn't really mean anything. It's just a silly little rhyme. You know, this, I pointed to my chin and I said, this is your chin. I said, and I had a beard. And I said, this is the hair on my chinny chin chin. Ha 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 ha. And they, they kind of confab for a few minutes and they came back and said, yeah, but does it have any kind of specific meaning? I said, no, not at all. It's just a silly little rhyme. He said, well, would you mind if we changed the window graphic? And I said, well, what's the problem? They said, well, chin chin in Japanese 
is Japanese slang for a, an appendage on the human body that's specific to the male. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. So I said, okay, let's call it the, the, yeah. the, the Three Little Pigs Construction Company. And that's why that changed. <laughs> like, that is a cultural accommodation I am happy to make. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> And they oh, couldn't yeah. understand. I was laughing. They couldn't understand why I thought that was funny. But <laughs> some things don't translate. But I would imagine, like you said, this Toontown is a place full of puns and uh, you know all sorts of wordplay and nonsense and things that things that have hidden meanings and things that have no meaning. So I would imagine translating all of that would be fairly difficult. Well, it was a challenge. It was definitely times. There were other weird things, too. I don't remember them offhand. But I remember going home and I go, good grief. <laughs> I'm glad we got through that one. Right. Just slowly working your way through things, I, I suppose. Well, anyway, I, I established myself with the Japanese. and They eventually wrote a letter to our company saying, would, would it be okay if... Scott Son became the primary writer for all Tokyo Disney projects. Oh, okay. I uh, I was flattered. I I agreed to it. It was a career buster. I because I did that, I was told I could never be promoted again. But at that really? point, oh yeah, that that's another story we, we won't go into. But uh, <laughs> um, I I I did it. I love I love working with the Japanese. You know, started out. I was terrified of them, and now I, I would go back in a, in a New York minute if mm -hmm. I was asked to go back and work with them. So after Toontown, what you obviously you keep you keep working with them. So uh, so what does that entail? Well, after Toontown, I was asked to join the Tokyo Disney Sea team. Ah, uh. and I became I, I wrote stories for each of the ports of call. Oh wow. And then I got sucked into writing show information guides for everything in the park. <laughs> Which I would imagine is quite a quite a lot of things to write about. When Tokyo Disney Sea opened, there were 111 um, show information guides. Now, I had a few. Uh, there's another thing. All the ones I wrote, OLC said these, these were fine. They were easy to translate. I had some other writers help me. OLC came to me and said, look, the way these guys write is very difficult for us to translate. Would you mind rewriting these things? So I thought, oh, my God. <laughs> so I ended up writing them all, except one. Michael Sprout was a great writer, a great guy. Uh, he wrote the one for the Magic Lamp Theater. They had no trouble with that one. But all the other ones, I went back and rewrote like 14 or 15. So show information guides are an interesting thing, and I think a lot of our listeners might might not know about that so could could you just tell us tell us what that is well those were documents written to educate the cast members as to what the story of the attraction was how, how they were supposed to behave in that story how the costume they wore was related to the to the, the story what how the design elements in the in the area were all related to the story so they had a total understanding of everything that the designers were trying to achieve. So when guests asked questions, they could answer them 
you know, authentically. The, the show, information, show information guys started out as basically being a one-page document, but for some reason, we had meetings about this, and they started to get more and more and more complicated. <laughs> To where to where a major attraction literally took forty hours to write because you know you were you were required to write about every every design detail in there that was a major part of the story or even a minor part of the story. I the ones that used to fry my brain were was uh, World Bazaar. The uh, I had to describe all the Victorian elements on the buildings. Oh to this goodness. to this day, I'll be honest with you. If I never see another Victorian building, I'll be perfectly happy. <laughs> I would imagine. Yeah, because you really have to get into these things because as you say it's it's a these are fascinating documents to me because it's basically imagineering telling operations for I don't know, for legacy, for in perpetuity. You know, this is what we meant by by these details, by this, you know, everything that we've designed and everything we've put together and this is what it means. So you really have to get into these things. You have to know what you're talking about to put it all down. And it was challenging, too, because we would have an agreed-upon story from which the designers worked from. But each designer had their own interpretation of that story. And they would mm. add things that weren't there originally. And and I'd have to go back and write it and then go back and talk to them again and again and again and again to finally get to a point where everybody understood what we were all trying to say. And it was there there are days like I wanted to just hop on a plane and go home because it was like <laughs> Mysterious Island was a real challenge. So much going on in there. There's skid marks because there the there were one time one of the uh, Captain Nemo's flying machines was going to be there, but for budget purposes, he, we had to take that out. But the, we left the skid marks in the ground, and I had to explain why the skid marks were there. Oh, wow! What the mo? There, there's a manhole cover that says Mobilis and Mobley on it, which is <laughs> which was the chap one of the chapters in Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. Um, mm -hmm. I had I had to look that up and explain that to him. I had to explain why they, when they, they put their, their right hand over their heart to form an N with their arms, that was the Captain Nemo salute. So whenever a cast member came to you, they were supposed to give you the Captain Nemo salute. Oh, wow. That's yeah. fun. And the, the great thing is the Japanese cast members are more into their job, I think, than many of the stateside cast members. Japanese are very dedicated and they really get into it. And the Japanese audience loves the product. It's just amazing to stand there and watch the smiles and the laughter and, and the happiness. It, it, it blows my mind. No, I, I was just at Walt Disney World. I mean, I saw some of that there too, but I also saw mothers yelling at their children and <laughs> screaming their heads <laughs> off. And I had right. a woman driver stroller up my back leg. And I'm thinking, mm. But... Right. But it is amazing when you see, I, you know, I've watched so many videos of, of, of Tokyo and 
how the cast members get into it. Things like the parades where there are mass choreograph, where the audience knows the choreography and there's special choreography for the audit, for the guests. Yep. And they'll be just dancing along with the parade. And as you say, oh. they just really get into it. They love the live entertainment over there. They love it. And there's so much of it there. And it, it, these shows are so elaborate. I, I know every time they put out, they'll put out, you know, I'm a, I'm a Disney music fan and uh, Disney music fans here. I always want big sets of, you know, people want a set of Epcot music, you know, really, really bad. But you look at Tokyo and they'll put out these, you know, 20 disc sets of music because they have so many shows and things. It's really remarkable. Yeah, funny. I don't know. Probably shouldn't say this. I get royalties for Veggie Veggie Fruit Fruit. Oh, okay. Put it on an Epcot album. And I, okay, I would get like every six months, I'd get like 40 bucks. You know? mm -hmm. Turns out I get a penny and a half for every every record that's sold. Okay. You know, I thought there's Exitensia told me, yeah, it'll be good bar money. <laughs> right. Well, one day I got a check. And it was for like $7,500. I go, huh? So I called the music publishing company. I said, I think there's been a mistake. And they go, oh, no mistake, Scott. And so we started selling the album in Japan. And they'll buy anything. <laughs> oh, wow. So I wish they'd start selling that record again over there. <laughs> I know. That's amazing. Well, I'm always amused when I see, because they obviously sell Tokyo Disneyland, Tokyo Disney Sea Music. But they will release... As you say, uh, Walt Disney World things over there, and I assume they sell very well because they are so deeply into it. That's great. Let me tell you, the most successful project I ever worked on started at Walt Disney World. Merchandise, the merchandise people in Florida had uh, started selling this thing called the Disney Bear. <laughs> right. And it didn't do well. So they sold 10,000 units of this Disney bear to OLC. OLC started selling the Disney bear in Aunt Peg's Village store in the Cape Cod area of Tokyo Disney Sea. We go over there and we see these bears. It's like, what? This doesn't make any sense. What? Why are you selling this Disney bear here in Cape Cod? OLC said, because we want to make money. We said, you've got to have a story. You've got to have some kind of connection here. So we went back to California, Joe and Cicero and I, and put together a story. I wrote a story about Mickey was the sea captain, and many made him this little bear to keep him company while he was out at sea. I named the because in the story he was originally given to Mickey in a duffel bag. I named him Duffels. Mm -hmm. All sea liked the story, but they said we... We would rather he be named Duffy. Would you mind if we called him Duffy? I said, no, let's call him Duffy. Duffy started making the plush, clothes, merchandise, food items. This thing exploded. It took off. When I re This was in 2006. When I retired in 2012, they told me Duffy and related merchandise had already made over a billion dollars. Holy cow. And, and I believe this, it too. And to this day, it's still going strong. 
well, it's only grown. You helped create a monster because it's only grown. They've added so many friends and other yeah. characters and a whole world. After I retired, I came back as a consultant for a little while and helped develop Gelatoni and um, Stella Lou the rabbit. Mm-hmm. You know, I have all these characters in my office upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> my my two-year-old grandson loves to take them off the shelf and annihilate them, which is fine with me. But uh, it just blows my mind that, that of all the things I've done and all the things I'm proud of, the most successful thing I did is a teddy bear. Right. Well, it's it's amazing. That whole story is amazing how it was just essentially a cast-off thing that nobody really thought anything of. And it has just become enormously successful. Uh, just huge. It's successful not only in Japan, but in, uh, I believe, Hong Kong and Shanghai. Mm -hmm. And yet they tried, they tried selling uh, Duffy stuff at the Disney's California Adventure. And poor Duffy's standing there all by himself with his handler for a photo op. And nobody was going up to him. And I felt kind of weird. I don't know what it is about, about that, that, why one culture sparks to it and another culture is like, eh. Yeah, it it is it's been interesting because since he became such a huge success overseas, they have they tried to bring him back to Epcot as well, and it was sort of the same thing where uh, it was I think probably moderately successful. I have no idea, you know, what the numbers were like or how busy he was, but it it didn't really take off like it took off, as you say, in I mean in Hong Kong, and they even have uh, the one at the the turtle that's out at Alani, so you know, all over the place. And it's just interesting to see what sort of translates back and forth and what doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. It, you were involved with that. I look at Duffy every day and go, way to go, dude. <laughs> exactly. But you need to get a, get a, get a royalty on Duffy. Then you'd really be talking. Oh, well, we've cheated about that before. Uh, yeah. If I got a Royal and Duffy, you know, I, I'd be on my yacht off the coast of France right now. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, what else? What other shows did you work on out out in uh, Tokyo? Well, okay. Uh, I did two versions of the Sinbad ride at, at Tokyo Disney Sea. Oh, okay. The original one was very well designed, very well crafted. Um, it was supposed to be the literal telling of. Seven Voyages to Sinbad from the Thousand One Arabian Nights. The, the figures were a little bigger than a Small World character, but it, they each figure they're like 166 of them, I think. But each one had as much animation inside as a pirate figure. Right. The problem what what happened was it was a literal telling of the story, and the, that story is very dark. I mean, Sinbad's crew gets picked up by a giant bird and flown away, and a giant comes out of nowhere and destroys the crew, and whale attacks them. It was just ultimately a very dark story, and, and the Japanese, not being that familiar with the Thousand Arabian Nights, didn't quite didn't quite resonate with them. Mm -hmm. My challenge was each figure that had dialogue. I had to write four different lines for, for each character. 
Oh, wow. So that the, when you went through the ride, you might you'd see the same show, but you'd hear a different version each time you went through. But the show just, it's, it, it wasn't working. It, it started to die on the vine. When the decision was made, we were going to lighten it up and put it to music. They brought in Alan Mankin, who wrote this beautiful piece of music called The Compass of Your Heart. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a great song. And the uh, show changed to to where the, the creatures became friendly, the giant became friendly, the whale was friendly. And basically the story was, you know, you, you can go out and you can find all the gold in the world, but you'll never find anything more richer or more valuable than the friends you make. And it, it, that's a story that really resonated with the Japanese. And it's the song. I, I think they did a brilliant job. Um, Glenn Slater wrote the lyrics, although I, there again, I had to sit down with the Japanese and explain the lyric. You know, it would be nice right. to see that done somewhere in the States because in English. But there again, I would I love to, it. I had to go back and rewrite all the dialogue again to, to conform to the new happier happier version and, and they also we also put in a, a little tiger cub named Chandu who's like Sinbad's you know his his, his pet and, and Chandu, Chandu is uh, is a big hit uh, I, I have some friends who are big Chandu fans and I know his merchandise if you look on eBay uh, people who resell Tokyo merchandise here in the states uh, Chandu merchandise is uh, is a rare commodity because people people love Chandu. It's uh, he's a big hit. Yeah, he and uh, Chuck Ballou designed him and uh, had him doing some very fun stuff throughout the ride. It was great, great addition, and like you say, merchandise another another wellspring of money. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, he's a cute character. I'd encourage everybody if they haven't seen this show to get on YouTube and pull up a video. I, I agree with you. I wish they do it in, in America because I'd love to hear it in English because obviously it's in Japanese. So I really, I mean, you can tell what's going on just from the way the scenes are staged, but you can't understand the dialogue, but the song is charming, even though I don't understand most of the lyrics and <laughs> it's, it's just a charming show and really a showstopper. Cause as you said, it has you know, more than a hundred animatronics. They're very small, but they're very well articulated and very elaborate. And so there's just motion everywhere. And I can't imagine writing the dialogue for all those characters because there are so many characters in it. That's a lot of writing. Yeah, it was. There were days I, I only could write two lines for a character. I'd have to put it aside and come back the next day and try to figure out how to write two more lines that all said the same thing but in a different way. Right. And the challenge with the Japanese is we have like 660,000 words in our, in our language. They only have 330,000 or something. So they were a little constrained trying to say the same thing four different ways in, in many cases, but they managed to do it. Oh, that's interesting. So even if you could think of different ways to say it in English, it might not translate as different. Correct. Oh my gosh! Well, you uh, that, 
I, that's so great. You worked on that show. I'm, I'm a big fan of that show and I, I haven't been to Tokyo yet, but hopefully will someday and really looking forward to that one. But you also worked on the Tiki room, didn't you? Oh boy. <laughs> worked on two Tiki rooms. Before, before I went to uh, work on TDS, um, there was talk of, of changing the Tiki room in Japan. And there were some ideas for a Tiki room floating around in the company and it was bring your child to work day. Mm. I brought both my boys. My, they were, what, eight and six and a half, whatever, at the time. Uh, my older son, Sean, my younger son, Brian. And that day I was scheduled to give a presentation to the Tiki Room to a group of people being led around by Jim Cora. Oh, okay. Jim at the time, he was like vice president of Walt Disney Productions Japan and president and chairman of Disney International. I mean, he was a head honcho. He was way up there. I'm up there giving this presentation for this possible show that we would do. My boys are sitting there bored out of their mind. But Jim Jim was straight shooter. He he didn't mess around. He goes, How do you know the Japanese are gonna like this show? I said, Well, Jim, we we we've talked to them and we think we've got some areas we can improve upon. Well, what do you think you're gonna improve upon? I mean, he was really hammering me. And I'm starting to get a little upset. And I'm thinking, what the hell, dude? My kids are sitting here. Yeah. And then started to get a little tense until my younger son, Brian, pulled out one of his teeth. <laughs> totally. There's blood, there's laughter, and Jim said, oh, my gosh, let's get this child uh, something to stop the blood. And, and he thanked me for the presentation. <laughs> they all went off. I've, to this day, I thank Brian for pulling his tooth out. <laughs> that is a that is a card you can only play so many times at a meeting <laughs> pulling a teeth yeah. out oh my goodness yeah i would imagine that would that would uh bring it into any conversation oh my gosh that that is the break glass in case of emergency i suppose <laughs> anyway we eventually uh ended up coming up with a, an idea called um get the fever it was a show mm -hmm. where the four birds were like Vegas performers. And the idea was that the Tiki Room had gone to sleep, and these birds had shown up, and they, they each were singing these hot numbers. That, that we, were, we were encouraging the audience to clap and move around and get the energy going so the Tiki Room would wake up again. And uh, um, Eddie Sato was in charge at the time, and Ed Eddie – my God, I've never seen a, another human being just have so many ideas in every day. He just turned out ideas after idea after idea. Mm -hmm. Bruce Gordon was the show producer, and Andy Belling put together a great score. But there again, that was a show that Vegas just didn't resonate with the audience that well. You know, the even though we had some great performances. It just it kind of fell flat after a year or two. So then we ended up doing another one toward the end of my career where Stitch was a very, very huge popular character in the Japan. Interesting. So we, we, I wrote this down somewhere because every time we came up with a name for an attraction, we had to get it approved through legal. Right. Man, I don't know where I wrote it down because it, it ended up being the longest title ever. 
Right. Uh, and all because for legal reasons. It's like something like featuring, and I, 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 I'm just off the top of my head, but it's like featuring Stitch and Aloha Ikomomai. That's what it was. Something, it was, but but one the, of those really long ones, yeah. The Enchanted Tiki Room presents Stitch. The no, the Enchanted Tiki Room colon Stitch presents Aloha Ikomomai. Okay, yeah. The, we couldn't use Aloha Ekomo Mai because it was registered by someone else. Uh, we couldn't use the name Stitch because it was registered somewhere else. Hmm. We, we had to combine all this stuff. Anyway, it ended up being the, the title. And I I think the show's still working out there. I'm not sure. But, but you know, you, you go in, this birds are doing their thing, and but all this crazy stuff starts happening around the room. You hear horns honking and and lights flashing and it's well we think it's stitch we're not sure but in the finale of the show stitch comes up where the fountain used to be he comes up mm -hmm. with a, with a ukulele and he they're singing um hawaiian roller coaster ride or something right one, yes yeah it's a really uh, a nice upbeat number to end the show on so that we got the disney into the show and then we got the show changed We've tried changing the shows in California before, but man, no, 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 no. That that that's sacred. That is a sacred place. Nobody wants anyone touching that because that was Walt's baby. You right. Know? Yeah. I would so, imagine it's difficult to as a writer when when you get tasked to, or or is it difficult? I I don't know. To for for something that is as sort of hallowed as the Tiki Room get assigned to. You know, to to change that up, of course, I guess it would be different in Tokyo, where it's not as much of an institution, but still, it's the Tiki Room. Well, you know, Marty Sklar wrote the original Tiki Room, and I gave a presentation of one of these Tiki Rooms to him, and, uh, whoa, you, you could feel the tension. He, oh, he really? was He was not, he was not happy. But he realized, you know, well, it's not Disneyland, and it's it's in a foreign country, where the the feeling about the show is not the same. So he was okay with that. But no, I guess I said some things that kind of irked him. <laughs> so, oh, really? You know about how boring the show was, and it's put it's put the flowers and everything to sleep, and blah blah, and we're gonna wake him up. And I could just see the steam coming out of his ears when I was talking. <laughs> right. You need someone to pull pull a tooth at that point to, <laughs> to get you out of it. I'd encourage also people to look up the Get the Fever because that was a I, I've seen video of that show and of course again the language barriers there, but it's a it's a fun conceit for the show. Was wasn't that the one with uh, lava the the sort of uh, torch singer torch yeah. singer bird lava the, the Peggy Lee inspired bird right she sang Fever. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah, we had a that whole show is a very Eddie Sato, Eddie Sato feel to it. Yes, that sort of mid-century feel. Yeah, we had a pre-show where uh, we had these two um, rap singing two cans. One put his beak down on a record, and they'd scratch the record and <laughs> sing a song about you got to go in, you got to wake up, you got to wake everybody up. Let's let's get it going, people. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, I, I would imagine that'd be a fun a fun world to get to play in. Uh, those those birds, uh, there's there's a lot of possibilities there. 
So, so uh, you know, you mentioned you retired in 2012. Is, is anything else you worked on before then, before, uh, before well, you called it a day? Well, I worked on Buzz Lightyear's Astro Blasters in Tokyo. Okay. We took the, uh, the show from Florida and expanded upon it. I think I talked earlier in the last, the last go-around that uh, we had a concept for a, a ride-through shooting gallery called Saucer Safari, and we were going to put it in the Circle Vision Theater. Mm-hmm. And also, she said, we don't want a, a ride-through shooting gallery in this building. Yet, we came up with a design for Buzz Lightyear's Astro Blasters, which is a ride-through shooting gallery that ended up mm-hmm. in the Circle Vision Theater. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. Because the, the safari is so interesting to me because I had heard about the one that Teehee, and I can't remember who else was working on for the Magic Kingdom once upon a time uh, back in the day, and had come upon some art, some not art, but photos of him, I guess, at Imagineering working on these wacky-looking alien characters. Yeah. And that always seemed like such a fun idea to me, especially with his art style. His so much, so fun. Yeah. That, that's really inspiring to us when we put together Saucer Safari. We wanted to capture that, that playfulness. Right, right. But that, but then they wound up getting buzz anyway. That's I hadn't even thought of that. That so it it wound up coming around somewhere or the other. Yeah. Now buzz buzz did very well. I think it's still doing very well over there. It's it's mm-hmm. interactive, you know, and the Japanese love that kind of stuff. Well, and I think probably an upgraded version of of what we had in Florida because it was a, it was a later version, so it the the technology was probably a little upgraded as well. Yeah. And then I worked on it when they transferred the, the same the same attraction to Anaheim. Oh, okay. So you got to come back a little bit For a stateside. Little, it was weird because I was there were times I was working on so many things at one time, and I'm surprised I didn't die from a heart attack. <laughs> well, thankfully, thankfully that didn't happen. Well, so anything else in you know anything else in your career? We've we've covered so much, but anything else you want to talk about? Anything I might have missed? Well, there was uh, Monsters Inc. Ride and Go Seek, which is in Tokyo Disneyland. Of course, and that's a that's a big one. Yeah, that was a, that was an, a, again another fun one because uh, it's it's interactive. It's a shooting gallery. Japanese love it. Um, I had a great time working in the recording sessions with the. Mike and Sully. It's funny, the uh, Mike Wazowski is played by a, a very small guy named Yushi Tanaka, I think it was. He, he's probably no more than 5'2", five, 5'3". Five, very oh, wow. small. A lot of energy. A lot of energy. He, he, his, his voice is perfect for Japanese Mike Wazowski. Then there's Sully, which was Hideheko Ichizuka, if I remember correctly. This gentleman is over six feet tall and obviously enjoys his meals. Uh-huh. <laughs> Very heavy. In fact, he had, he had a TV show at that time where he traveled all over Japan eating the food from different regions. Oh, okay. <laughs> so you got, you got this big, tall Mike uh, or Sully and a little, little Mike Wazowski. And, uh, very funny to watch them work together. But, uh, That's the, so funny. 
but we we did the show. We had a little problem with it too. The ending didn't work, so we had to go back and redo another ending for the show. Oh, really? What 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 was what was it like at first? Well, there's a point where the game starts, and Mike Wazowski is standing there when you the the hard hats that they wore in the laugh floor. You know, you wanted to shoot the hard hat you saw because they would reveal something underneath. And you're trying to find Boo throughout the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a point where Mike says, okay, game begins, and he pulls his lever, and then suddenly your flashlights light up, and here, off you go back to the game. There wasn't a definitive ending to the game. It just kind of petered out. So we had to go back and, and put in another video screen at the end where you saw Mike Wazowski again saying, thanks for playing, and he turned the game off. Gotcha. It was a challenge because, you know, we had to cram all this dialogue in a very short space, but it it worked out in the end. And, and uh, I, as far as I know, that show is still very successful over there. Yeah, that was one that I know was wildly successful. That was one that people would, first thing in the morning, that, that's what you would always hear for people who were going over there, you know, to plan your trip. It said, first thing in the morning, you got to go get your fast pass or whatever for this because it was it was the hot ticket to yep. get into. Yeah. And there again, we also had to create a, a little video pre-show in the queue line to warm people up to the idea of what they were going to be doing inside. Right. Yeah, you have to get get across the world that you're going into, and also the mechanic of what <laughs> what you're going to be doing. So you've got a lot of bases to cover in a video like that, I would guess. Oh yeah, yeah. It was, and we worked with uh, Pixar, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, Roger Gould from Pixar, you know. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Rogers. Roger was good. He very thorough. Very. He made sure that the Pixar. IP was not messed with. <laughs> right. They are very, um, I don't know, very, very, very detailed eye into, <laughs> into how their things get represented for sure. Yep. Well, that's great. Uh, of course that goes into that, go, that went into the uh, meet the world theater, which was something that I was always fascinated with is something that never made its way into Epcot, but uh, something that I was always very curious about, but never got to see. I saw it once. On, <laughs> and on, there again, it, it was in Japanese. So I, I didn't know a lot of what they were saying. This is before, before uh, I was working over there permanently. Right, right, right. That was a tough one because the whole war thing was kind of had to gloss over that. And it's just, it was kind of awkward. Yes. Yeah. I would imagine. Yeah. They just kind of, kind of a gloss over it, I guess is a good way to put it. Yeah, absolutely. Just sort of, and then some bad stuff happened, but now things are great. <laughs> yeah. Are that's, great. that's kind of what it was. Can't yada, yada. After, after that, I worked on a, recording sessions for Mickey's Filmer Magic. Oh, fun. And Toy Story Mania. I worked with uh, Woody, who's Toshiaki Karasawa, and all the, the Japanese versions of, of the Toy Story characters. Um, 
I didn't have much to do with the ride. I just made sure that the script was translated properly and re- the recordings went well. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, but another thing I did is, is Mr. Potato Head with Akira Nagoya. Okay. Now, I worked with Raul Fernandez, who is an interactive genius, probably one of the smartest guys I've ever worked with in my life. Raul created and play-tested branching games for guests in the parks. And uh, we did a lot of play-testing for what a Potato Head script might be like. I think back to my days when I wrote a branching script for Smart One. Well, I had to... Mm. I had to do it way much more for Mr. Potato Head. He was far more sophisticated. Um, and if I remember correctly, the audience interacted with him. There were like nine branches for each question that was asked in 16 games total. So this thing could have gone off in all kinds of directions. And it blew the audience away. I watched them asking these questions. You know, of course, Potato Head would set up a scenario and said, who do you think I should say this to or whatever? And the audience would say, say it to so-and-so. Well, he would go off on that direction. If they said, say it to this person, he would go off in that direction. And and then those directions could go in other directions too. It was wild to watch. Wow. And That's a lot of writing. How do you translate uh, Mr. Potato Head for... Japanese, because because uh, in you know in English with uh, you know the the actor who Don Rickles who did it in English that that's a very specific type of humor. So uh, well, how did that translate? Well, fortunately, there you know the movie had been translated, so they they uh-huh. they had a a pattern you know a way of him speaking in Japanese. Sure. They just followed those rules when we did the Potato Head for. Tokyo Disney Sea. That's interesting. Yeah, that that branching dialogue that'll do your head in because that's that's a lot to take into consideration. And then the last thing I did there, attraction wise, was Goofy's Paint and Playhouse in Toontown. Okay. Um, you know, there used to be Goofy's Bounce House, but they had to take it out because too many injuries. You know, or the possibility of injuries. So, um, you know, Goofy's house, you walk into Goofy's house and it's kind of disheveled and need of repair and, and you have these rows of rows that we call splat masters, which were basically paint guns, which were digitally, digital projections that you fired on the wall. And the mm-hmm. kid would just shoot, shoot all over the place and change the, uh, change the theme of Goofy's house. And there were like, there was like a wild west theme, a beach theme. It was a jungle theme, you know. So that's fun. That's a fun interactive for kids. We did we did mock-ups in the states before going over there, and and uh, because at that time I could do a fairly reasonable traditional goofy voice. Mm-hmm. So I did the scratch track, which was a big mistake, because by the end of the day I could hardly keep character anymore, and I had a sore throat for two days afterward. <laughs> right, but it's the pr- the price of uh, the price the price of fame. And then in 2012, I was asked to be a keynote speaker at a yearly 
forum that all she holds. Hundreds of hundreds of cast members come to these things. And this particular forum was celebrating the ten year anniversary of Tokyo Disney Sea. And I spoke of the story and design conceits behind each of the ports in the park. Very well received. And I didn't know it at the time, but the OLC Board of Directors was in the audience. Oh, wow. And when I finished, one of them came up to me and they said, Scott San, we understand you do very good work with us. Would you please reconsider and not retire? I was blown away. I was. Wow. I was honored. I was flattered, humbled, grateful. I thanked him profusely for for saying that to me, but I said I just I couldn't take it anymore. Basically, <laughs> changed. I'd gotten older. Things had changed at Disney. I understand. You know, life has changed. Things are going to change. You know. Stories change, people change, audiences change, the companies have to change to, in order to stay relevant. You know, the, I come from a long line of Disney people. I mean, we used to put Disney content into the parks, you know. I have nothing against Star Wars. I've got nothing against Marvel. They're just not things that I resonate with. But it, it, it's, it bothers me that the Disney that I knew and grew up with is no longer there you know it's it's i mean i i am totally cool with them changing star wars and bringing in marvel and bringing in you know uh, avatar and all that stuff but but it's just not the disney i grew up with so i just have to let that go i mean i was just there i, I had a good time and i enjoyed the rides but my Disney's my Disneyland and Disney World are gone. So yeah, that's it's it's. Uh, I think for anybody who's a who's a, who's a who's a fan, I don't know it. Once once you reach a a certain point in your life, you you notice that things things have changed. You know there because because it does happen. But uh, yeah, I know what you mean. Well. You know, life has changed, and I, I have to. I, mean, I remember when I was 12, 13, and the Beatles were just becoming big, and I would hear adults saying, These guys are awful. Who the hell do they think they are? Where are those stupid haircuts? And I, I remember literally at that time thinking, I'm not going to be one of those people. You know, I'm, I'm going to go with the flow. You know, people mm -hmm. are going to change, and they do. I don't always like it, but it's the way it is. I grew up in a world vastly different than my parents. My children grew up in a world vastly different from mine. My grandson now is growing up in a world vastly different than that. And it's it's always gonna be different. And can't stop it. It's gonna happen. Right. Absolutely. Well, I th I think that even like even for my generation, that for for those of us who were big, big time Disney fans as kids, we were immersed in the things that your generation grew up with, because we had Disney Channel, but it would air Walt Disney things. It would air, you know, I grew up watching Zorro and Wonderful World of Color and, and all those things, which is, you know, a generation before me, you know, things my parents would watch. But I grew up with that as well. So I identify with that. So, you know, 
I don't know. That's almost like two generations worth of change that you have to get used to when sure. when, when you grow up loving <laughs> something that's sort of older than yourself. Well, it's funny stuff. Despite all that, I had the honor of being an Imagineer for 37 years. And I worked with some incredibly and amazing talent, talented people, gifted people. You know, I don't know how many people I would recognize if I were to visit WDI now. You know, I, I mean, when I heard that Kevin Rafferty and Joe Rohde had retired, that was like, to me, it was like, well, that's kind of like it. The, the, the WDI I was a part of is no longer the same. Right. Kind of, it was kind of, kind of a downer for me. But I know they've got immensely creative and talented people working there now, youngsters that weren't even born when I was working there. Um, and I wish them all the best and success in the future. And I know, I know the Disney product is going to continue to amaze and impress people for generations to come. And I'm just glad that I was once upon a time, I played a small role in that. Absolutely. Well, and the things that you worked on are still remembered today. A lot of things you worked on are still there today. Uh, but it is, you know, the, the passage of time is funny because I, I, you know, I think of, you know, when I was a kid, you'd see on on TV when they'd have these specials about the parks or the Imagineering or whatever. You'd have the people that you knew were the old timers who had been there before and had retired. People like, you know, Mark Davis and Herb Ryman, people like that. Then you had the people who were still working, people like... Tony Baxter and Joe Rohde, people like that. Well, now those people have retired. Those have become what sort of Mark Davis was like when I was young. So it it is strange to think that, you know, the, the faces change, but hopefully the spirit stays the same, you hope. Well, that's, that's, it is a spirit. Disney has a spirit about it that, you know, it's, it's a, it's a way of looking at the world. that's different than most other places. I mean, to be part of something that makes a, a product that, that brings smiles and happiness to people, um, there's just nothing better than that. You know, and, and, Absolutely. and even though time is eroding Walt's underlying philosophy, which does disturb me, um, I think they're still making an effort to keep that alive as much as possible. You know, you get these new executives to come in there that have, didn't grow up in the company and they just say, well, we're going to do things this way. And they never took the time to, to learn the philosophy to the level that most of us did. It's just, eventually it's just going to erode and that, that disturbs me greatly. But, but uh, I was a part of it when it was great and, and I will always be grateful for that. That's great. Well, we thank you for all your work. We thank you for everything you've done. And we definitely thank you for your time. Thanks for joining us and for sharing all these stories. Well, I'm, I'm, you know, when you first called me, I thought, I don't want to do this. Who wants to listen to me? In fact, I listened to the first point and I thought, listening to my voice, I'd rather listen to a dentist drill. <laughs> well, I can't stand listening to myself either. So I, I <laughs> and I do this as a hobby. So I, I, I do it, I torture myself. 
but but no, uh, people really enjoyed it, and I know they're going to enjoy this as well because, uh, as I said, this is a legacy that you've left, so we uh, appreciate it. All right. Well, I'm, I'm glad I did it, and I had a lot of fun, and I really enjoyed meeting you, Michael. Oh, it's a pleasure. Well, that wraps up our interview, our town hall, Scott Hennessy. Uh, Jeff, what what a career Scott had. It's just amazing. And he really inspirational in that he finds ways to kind of adapt to the environment he's in. I mean, so many little changes in WDI that he witnessed and, you know, a lot of scary times with uh you know, people being laid off and Scott seemed to find a way to navigate that. And I mean, the Tokyo stuff is so intriguing. Just thinking about how Disney kind of went into that situation. And uh, I mean, the results speak for themselves. Tokyo is, is really just kind of the standard bearer now for, for Disney parks. I feel like. Yeah, it, it really is the gold standard and it's become such a, I feel such a mythical thing here among fans in America that it, it's become sort of a bucket list kind of destination because mm-hmm. it's developed such a mythos about it. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I want to go. <laughs> I know, me too. Uh, but, yeah, yeah. That's, 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 that's a podcast that needs to be made. For yes, sure. it is. It is. Well, thanks so much to Scott. I mean, these guys come in, or gals, uh, come in and spend so much time sitting down, mostly with you, but with us. And uh, it's just so amazing that they are so giving of their time. And we just love getting these stories. I mean, how else are you going to hear about you know, the inner workings of the makings of kitchen cabaret, unless you sit down with somebody like Scott, who was there when it was happening. Exactly. Exactly. So very grateful to him for his time for sure. Yes, absolutely. Well, Michael, it's that time in the podcast where we welcome in our new Patreon subscribers. Do we have anybody new this time? We do. Uh, We'd like to welcome April, Lauren, Brian, and Ken, uh, this episode to Patreon and, uh, really glad to have them grateful to have them. And they'll be signing up, of course, for early access to episodes for a little packet of goodies, progress city goodies, some access to some special things online. And, uh, at, uh, the silver level, of course, our monthly live stream where we all get together and, have a little chat, have a little trip down memory lane, look at some rare photos, look at some rare videos maybe. Uh, those have been really fun lately. A lot of great people in the chat. The chat's been picking up big time. It's true. It's always a fun, you know, little reliable dive bar of Disney history. And the regulars come out and we always have a few new people. So, you know, come check it out, especially if you're a Patreon member. Uh, come Come see what it's all about. There's always some interesting history there. And if and if you're curious and you're on Patreon, you, of course, have access to all our past live streams. You can look up and watch and uh, 
see for yourself, but I'm sure we'll have another one coming up right around the bend. And like I said, Christmas is coming. So we'll, we'll, uh, tend to some Christmas I'm sure in, in due time. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, we've got gosh, like 25 or more now live streams in the library mm-hmm. that you can kick back and enjoy once you sign up. And, uh, also our discord server, a private discord for our Patreon backers has been popping off lately. So that's yeah, been a, that's lot, of a fun lot of too. fun. Yeah, yeah. So as Twitter dies, you, we can just move this Twitter over to our, uh, Patreon, uh, discord server as a little bit of refuge. So, all those benefits and more can be yours. Join at patreon.com slash progress city USA. It's tax deductible. And, and we thank you. We're so grateful to everyone. Absolutely. Thank you all so much who support us. Thank you all for listening. And like Michael said earlier, if you want to send us an email, we always love opening our mailbag. That's at pro- podcast at progresscityusa.com. We are still on Twitter for the, you know, we're never sure how long at the end of these episodes. But <laughs> right. Michael's at Progress City USA. I'm at Jeff G. Crawford. Uh, and, you know, for those of you who know, and we've probably talked about it some on here before, I've been very busy with stuff with work and stuff with personal life. But we're coming back strong, and we have a game plan here, Michael. I'm happy to ask you again, what are we doing next? Well... As everyone probably knows by now, it is the 100th anniversary of the Walt Disney Company. We just passed the 100-year marker, and we are going to celebrate that uh, amazing milestone. Even even though I got an email, I got an email the other day from uh, some sort of Disney email that was, you know, a promotional email that was like. Even though the celebration is over, we still want to blah, blah, blah. I was like, no, no, no. It's not over. It's not over yet. It's just getting started. You don't know how we operate. Yeah, you don't know how we do. So uh, we're going to take a look back at a century of Disney, some of our favorite things there, and uh, just, you know, look back and talk about some of our favorite things. This will be fun because, uh, you know, if you if you have listened for a long time, you know we – do a lot of deep dives uh, at most of our themed episodes. And this one is just going to be a little potpourri of fun. So I'm excited to get into it. Uh, It'll be a little change of pace. Absolutely. And after that, of course, we've got Christmas coming. So who knows? Who knows what might happen on Christmas? (laughs) Who knows? We always throw a good party. Yeah, absolutely. So with all that over the horizon... We bid you adieu. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much to our backers. Uh, we really, really appreciate it. Anything, any other thoughts from you, Jeff? Just gratitude to everyone who has tuned in as always. Thanks to our Patreon backers. Thanks for your patience in this time in my life. And I'm looking forward to joining you all more as we go ahead in these coming months. Yeah, right on. We're really looking forward to it. So from all of us to all of you, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.